Welcome to... Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Cracked Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. Have a really exciting show for all of you listeners today. Probably since this podcast's inception back in June of 2017 in my college apartment, have I wanted to do a mailbag show where we field questions from our listeners and talk about the topics you want to hear because, of course, that means we've developed an engaged following. That means we have listeners who not only hear us discuss the things going on in the tennis world, but have additional topics that they would like our input on, that they are also engaged in the sport that we love just as dearly, that they want to continue the conversation about the things we love to talk about here at Cracked Rackets. And we finally have the opportunity to do that on today's show as we have a college tennis mailbag for all of you listeners to get you excited for the 2021 ITA kickoff weekend slated to start this Friday. A huge shout out and thank you to all of you listeners who submitted questions. This is something we want to do repeatedly throughout this 2021 season, not just related to college tennis, but related to all things going on in the tennis world. So a huge thank you to all of you who took the time to send in your questions. A huge thank you to my co-host on today's podcast, who unfortunately you're not going to get to hear the usual introduction for. I will do it for them quickly, I promise. But we ended up dividing this mailbag podcast into two parts because it ended up being over an hour and a half long. The first part discuss the developments to this weekend's ITA kickoff action, the withdrawals we've seen, and how that impacts the draw, the action that we might see unfold throughout the course of the weekend. We talk about that on today's mini break podcast, but of course, joining me to answer all of your questions here, the other two members of our college tennis holy uh, trinity, you know him as your favorite uh, Cracked Rackets writer, former four-star recruit on tennisrecruiting.net, Nick Stokowiak's other half in Matt Stokowiak, and of course, watch me rip through this intro when he's not here. Forefather of the college tennis ranks formula predictions, never far from the listed UTR. One of the many dames who roots for the Liberty Flames. A lover of almond joys, lover of mothers, the professor, the snitch, one-armed designer, and of course the man who quotes Henry Ford II, Henry Ford I actually. It's Chris Hallioris. They both join me to answer all of your questions. God help you if you listen to these podcasts in like one and a half or 1.25 speed. That was really fast conversation. I apologize. That way, see, I just slowed it down for them so they heard that a little bit slower. Uh, but anyways, uh, obviously it was very, very fun. The reason I'm having fun here for this intro outro, because that's the tone of this podcast. We answer some of the other questions you guys have, not just about the contenders heading into this year, but things such as, you know, do we think there should be team and fall in, uh, events in separate seasons? Should we separate when those two things happen? What do, uh, you know, we think about things uh, such as the future of college tennis, you know, uh, all of the various questions. Again, there were so many great ones. It's hard to sort through. We talked about, oh, you know, what is the definition of gamesmanship within the sport? What's within the bounds of what's acceptable and what is not? And just, you know, what do we think about the future for the Baylor program, given all they've gone through over the past year? Uh, a bunch of different topics uh, that I think all of you listeners will enjoy. Chris, oh, we talk about how this year's regional rankings, I'm not going to cover all of the questions, I promise, but how this year's regional-based schedules is going to impact the rankings come NCAA time. Again, uh, I think you all are really going to enjoy what was a very fun mailbag podcast, and then we will be back tomorrow on the show to give our predictions and have some fun with some prop bets we have for this 2021 college tennis season, so be on the lookout for that tomorrow. And a quick reminder, uh, we will be covering all of this weekend's kickoff action 
on our YouTube channel with our new Red Zone style show. Again, working title. As soon as I have something I'm comfortable with, I'll start calling it that. But, you know, we're going to be jumping from site to site, court to court across the country as the action heats up uh, to cover all of the weekend. It'll be Chris Hallyhorst and I providing color commentary. I'm sure we're going to get some fun guests on the stream as well. A huge shout out to the athletic departments, the coaches, the SIDs, everyone who helped us facilitate this sort of access. You realize this sort of thing hasn't happened yet because of how difficult it is to negotiate with some of these conferences. But again, I don't blame the individuals. I blame I suppose the system as a whole. It's the system, man. My issues are with the system. No, my issues are significantly with the system. That's why this stuff doesn't happen because anytime there's money to be made, people want to be the ones making the money. Anyways, we just want to be the ones promoting college tennis, and we have the opportunity to do that thanks to the cooperation of so many great people throughout college athletic departments throughout the country. So really excited to bring all of that to you. Hopefully, you will all follow along with us throughout the weekend. Uh, Of course, the reason we are able to do these podcasts podcast day in day out because of the support we get from our friends at DraftKings and some of you may have noticed the ace of the day segments on a hiatus until professional action at the ATP and WTA levels is back in our life I'm trying to pad those stats I'm going to be honest folks uh, before we get to the Australian Open the Australian summer swing but of course if you want to get in on the ITF or challenger action happening across the globe or maybe you want that football playoff parlay right you really like Tom Brady a second time over Aaron Rodgers or you think that Aaron Rodgers, despite not having the resume of Tom Brady, is actually the greatest thrower of a football in NFL history. You watched him throw and complete that Hail Mary against the Lions and thought to yourself, oh my God, that is the greatest play I've ever seen on a football field, despite it being a regular season game because he threw that football freaking perfectly. And when you're designing your ideal quarterback, you'd want a guy who's a little bit stubborn because he's determined that he knows he can stick to script, stick to game plan. He can do a little bit of everything. He's mobile inside the pocket, but outside of it as well. He can make every throw, the touch, the accuracy, the precision. Uh, Anyways, if you want to get in on the football playoffs, you want to get in on the NBA regular season action, some futures bets for the Australian Open, any of the above, you can do it with our friends at DraftKings. Here's how it works. You're going to go to DraftKings.com, create your DraftKings Sportsbook account, and make a deposit. From there, DraftKings will match your first deposit at 20% up to $500. After that, it's really simple. You're going to make your first bet, and DraftKings will also match that with a risk-free first bet up to $500. Just go to DKNG.co slash cracked open to play. That's DKNG.co slash cracked open. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, crisis counseling and referral services can be accessed by calling 1-800-GAMBLER in Illinois, New Jersey, West Virginia or Pennsylvania, 1-800-9-WITH-IN-INDIANA, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, or 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado. Users must be 21 years or older and in a participating state to take advantage of this offer. Deposit bonuses in DK dollars, which have no cash value and must be used on DraftKings. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for more details. By the way, as a former Michigan guy myself, I'm not anti-Tom Brady. I just think Aaron Rodgers is really, really freaking good. Anyways, dkng.co slash cracked open is the way to play. Uh, But with that in mind, you guys came here to hear a mailbag edition of the show. So without further ado, let's get to our first 2021 college tennis mailbag with Chris Hallioris and Matt Stachowiak. So we wanted to have a little fun 
in the build-up to this weekend's kickoff event. We wanted to hear from you, the listeners, about the things you still had questions about before this 2021 season really gets underway. Of course, there are so many conferences across the country, so many different uh, stories and players and subjects for us that we could discuss day in, day out here at Cracked Rackets. We do our best to try to sift through it all, bring you the bulk of the important information. But again, we wanted to know what you listeners still had questions about heading into this 2021 season. So we opened up today's podcast for a mailbag edition of the show. We want to give a huge shout out to all of you out there who took the time to participate in this mailbag, who sent in questions. A particular shout out to you, Jay. This podcast is pretty much from here on in essentially made for you, which by the way, you deserve with all the support you've given us throughout the years. So a huge shout out to you for all of your questions. A huge shout out to anyone who submitted one. We will be doing this later on in the season as well. So keep sending in your questions throughout the year. We can build a queue of them for later mailbags. With that in mind, Westoff, give me a mailbag sound effect and let's get to it. All right, first question comes from Jay Chris, and this was one he addressed specifically to you. And by the way, this was the first question he sent, and I mentioned this, I think, on a previous podcast. It really pissed me off because it was directed directly to you. And I was like, come on, there's nothing Chris is more qualified to answer than I am, although this is a pretty good one for you. His question, and it, by the way, he did. He, he joked, he goes, ha, I'll probably be responding to this tweet all day as new things pop up. Jay, you did respond all day. I don't know if you don't have anything else going on, but come on. Like 12, no, you can't like us that much. Like no one likes me that much. I think I get to question three with my dad. He's like, okay, 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 that's enough, Alex. Like they, you're good. Um, but no, obviously appreciate your questions. We're going to get to it. as many as them we can. First one, it's more for uh, – I'm going to read it anyways. More for college tennis ranks. How do we anticipate the limited, mainly conference schedules impacting rankings? Example, will Stanford be way underranked come May? Maybe deviation in NCAA seeding versus ITA rankings. Your thoughts on this topic, Chris, because I know you prepared uh, a quality answer for this one. Yeah, so, you know, first, I, I my first inclination was just, just to – jump into what my opinion would be based on the formula that we've always known to be the formula for determining rankings. Uh, but that that formula is usually put out in the form of the ITA rankings manual that comes out every year and hadn't been put out yet of rankings at the ITA being Corey Brooks. Uh, so I sent you know the question to Corey Brooks to say, hey, I don't want to give this uh, question from Jay a, you know, any, a, I don't want to do it a disservice. What do we know? What can you tell me? If you can't tell me the fine too, whatever, right? Just let me know what, what's kind of going on uh, from a rankings perspective. So first I'll give my opinion afterwards, but I will, uh, I will read the quote from Corey just so everybody knows how that's where we stand right now. And that is from Corey quote, the ITA division one ranking subcommittee in conjunction with the NCAA D1 tennis committee continues to review potential modifications to the spring season ranking procedures. Competition being limited to conference only or regional only play is of great concern as it will have a significant negative impact on most computer models. As of today, everything is still on the table, including changes to computer run and publishing dates and changes to the rankings formula involving countable wins, etc. It's also possible there could be heavier reliance on human, parentheses, coaches, polls throughout the season at the ITA level and consequently at the NCAA level. 
As much as we would love to roll out a plan today, the subcommittee feels it's better for us to wait and see what play looks like in the early part of the season and then make more concrete decisions regarding 2021 rankings, end quote. So I will, A, props to Corey for actually responding to me and not just ignoring me. Uh, you know, that's I, he, he told us exactly where they stand. Given that information, it's really hard to say how we think it's going to play out because what I'm reading into that is, hey, if these schedules don't change and we have a lot of people that are playing conference-only, regional-only schedules, we're not going with the standard formula just because there are going to be too many teams that might be really good teams that only get to play you know, a handful of teams they can drive to play, and we don't want them being you know, screwed in the rankings because of it. Hence his comment about the potential for coaches polls counting as a part you know it could be like a bcs kind of thing where it was polls and computer weighted together uh who knows i'll be honest the only part that i'm not a huge fan of in that response i think all of that's fine the only part that i'm not really a big fan of in there is just the fact that they kind of said hey we're not going to roll a plan out today because we want to watch and i understand the wanting to watch but I also feel like there are going to be teams and coaches that say, well, you can't get six weeks into the season and then tell us what the criteria are for making the tournament. Obviously you can, but I mean, someone's going to cry wolf at the end, like, Hey, that wasn't fair to us. Uh, and it was to someone else, but, uh, but you know, unusual times call for unusual circumstances here. So, you know, it's, it's, it's way too difficult without knowing uh, that what that formula is going to be how it's going to play out. But what I do read into it is they're definitely not just going to go back to business as usual. It's probably highly unlikely we see the usual formula being used. Jay, I hope you listened to that answer because two sentences in, I was blanked out. If you could see Maddie's face, I think he blanked out as well. No, I'm just kidding. That's why we call Chris the professor around here because he has all of the answers behind the formula. I will say this, if they need some hand modification, if they want some personal input, they're more than welcome to have access to our CR ranking data. Right, guys? We're, we're happy to share with them our files, what, what we have built up, how we determined our rankings. We'll just send them a transcript of the call that the three of us had. And we'll be like, here's our data. Like, you can read through this. Tell me if it makes sense. Figure out how to weigh it appropriately. But no, uh, I, I think that pretty thoroughly answered that question. Maddie, anything to add? No. No, that was uh, a very <laughs> thorough and good answer, Chris. Um, I know Jay will appreciate that, as well as all of the other listeners who I'm sure, um, you know, were, were having similar questions. Yeah, the question I would ask you guys, who do you think, and we'll start with you, Chris, if you had to name a team or a conference, I suppose, I know you kind of did this, but who do you think is most affected by this ranking? Is it the non-Power 5 school, or is it maybe a particular conference that just isn't as strong? Such no, as the Big Ten. I, I, I think this is an easy question. I think that the teams within the it's the specific teams within a conference that will be most impacted are your upper to mid level Big Ten schools because the Big Ten is going to be stuck playing a Big Ten only schedule. Oh, and you know Ohio State, they're going to be just fine. We all know that. Michigan, they'll be fine. Illinois, they'll probably be fine, but. Once you get past those schools, now we're talking Iowa, Minnesota, Indiana. Okay, if we say, hey, they're losing to Michigan and and Ohio State, they're not getting the chance for the big wins, 
and yeah, they're going to beat up on the lower end. Where are they getting points and wins? Because there's that there aren't the points out there now. They don't get to play those non-conference matches against anybody else, and they're not getting those wins in the kickoff with the abbreviated kickoff weekend either. So I think it really it's going to be rough on some of those schools that are kind of the the second tier in the Big Ten. Mm-hmm. No, uh, Maddie, anything to add? Yeah, no, I that, think that nailed it. He nailed it, Chris. That's, again, fantastic yeah. answer. I was going to say the Big Ten Conference is really where you need to look. My brother Nick actually, um, over over the holiday break, spoke to uh, one of the women's players on Penn State's team, um, who's obviously in that conference as well. And, and she was worried, right? She was worried about this. So um, I think a lot of the schools within that conference are already kind of thinking ahead, like, oh, shoot, what are we going to do? Um, you know, when it gets down to it. So yeah, the, the big 10 conference is, is definitely the one to look at. Yeah. I'm not conceding the match to Baylor yet because I still have faith in the boys, but let's say the boys do lose to Baylor, uh, in that first match, getting a win over Pepperdine or A&M in match two is that much more important for the Wolverines because that could legitimately be their highest ranked win of the season, depending where a team like Illinois ends up or if they're able to beat the Buckeyes or not at any point this year. So yeah, Chris, I think you nailed that question completely. And with that in mind, we can move to question number two, and we're going to stick in the Big Ten because we got this question from multiple people in, you know, a few weeks back, who knows, all these weeks, months have blended together, but there was a tweet from Oklahoma Tennis where they praised uh, their program over the past decade, and they were saying, we won an NCAA championship, we made three NCAA finals, national indoors, yada, yada. And so I tweeted out that they were one of my 10 best programs of the decade. Now, I didn't get too much grief for that, but I got a lot of grief for throwing Illinois in the mix as well over a team like Baylor, over some of the other schools that deserve to be there. And I'm not saying Illinois has definitively been a top 10 school over the past decade, but they've certainly been in the mix throughout the Craig Tiley, Brad Brad Dancer era of uh, their program. And, you know, we got this question again from multiple people so both anonymous and at alex illini 05 ask thoughts on illinois tennis this year maddie i'll start with you how do you like the fighting illini who we should mention hosts of the national indoors guaranteed spot into the quarterfinals do you think they're headed to owen three do you think they can compete there what do you think for them in 2021 yeah, and again, remember, guys, this year indoors, we're only we've got eight teams, right? Normally, it's sixteen, so that's going to factor in. I do think Illinois will be able to compete at some level. Like, I when you have players like Kova and Alex Brown and Zeke Clark, I mean, these are guys that have been around for years. They're they're too good of players. They're not just going to get wiped completely off the court, you know. I, I'm not saying that they're going to win any of their matches there, but I I think they will be able to compete. My issue with the Illini this year is going to be their depth. And and this was really, I think, when we talked about Illinois last year, was a similar concern. Like, I think they're good towards the top of their lineup. I think they're going to be okay in doubles as well. I think their doubles can be fine. It's just that depth, right? What are they going to do at five and six singles are they going to consistently be able to win matches there? You know, because if they can't, it, it could be tough, right? I mean, obviously, when you're playing one and two, you know, maybe you split those matches and win either at one or two singles with Kova and, and Alex Brown. So 
I think they're going to be a good team. Uh, you know, so much so where I'm going to put them up there, you know, close to Michigan, you know, coming in at third within the Big Ten. Um, so they're still going to be a very good team. But, you know, I, as far as the national landscape this year, I just don't see it for them in the top 10. I don't think they're going to get there because there's too many teams that just have so much experience and depth and, and that parody. Um, you know, there's at least 10 other squads that I like considerably more than Illinois this year. Chris? Yeah, I mean, so look, last year was just, you know, it was a year for Illinois where they, they just couldn't get anything going, right? It's kind of like the, you flip a coin. Well, sure, there's a one in 32 chance that you flip the same thing, you know, six times in or five times in a row. But, you know, and, and maybe it was just that kind of year for Illinois. But as Maddie said, they've got the talent, right? You've got Kova at the top. You've got AB. You've got Zeke Clark. You've got Monsi. Same concern. Who's five, six? But they've got guys. I mean, it's not like they don't have capable guys. They have capable guys that can play five, six. They have the pieces. It's just a matter of, whatever happened last year, can we, can we get that behind us and, and, you know, move on and, and get off to a good start. And so for that reason, I think, I think that it, the indoor weekend could be a big one for them that if they can get off to a decent start, not go, Oh, and three, right. With eight teams, one team goes three and Oh, and one team goes Oh, and three. So try not to be that Oh, and three team, right. It may be tough. If you come in as the eight seed, you get North Carolina or USC, first match, right? I guess by, based off rankings, it'd be USC. Uh, that's a rough match. After that, I think anything's fair game. Um, you know, so that's, that, that's a positive and they just need to, they need to go after it. Uh, but, but yeah, there, there's no reason they can't. And, you know, if you look at mine, obviously last year, who knows where they finished. I, in the course of getting my site updated, Alex, over the last couple of days and ready for the year, I've got a current and live, uh, my top 25, if you will, and I believe, and I was just pulling up, I've got them at 23 uh, in the top 25. So, uh, you know, firmly behind, obviously, uh, Ohio State and Michigan, but definitely the next school in line in the Big Ten. Um, and and I think they should, they should be able to have a dogfight with Michigan. I don't know that anybody's going to beat Ohio State, but they should be in a dogfight with Michigan. Look, I, I've said this before. I'll say it again. Last year was the year from hell for the Illini. And jo uh, Chris, this joke is for you. There are some out there who think we may be biased uh, just towards Michigan, towards certain Big Ten teams, Ohio State, we talk about all of the time. As you mentioned, Chris, and as I think we talked about repeatedly at the start of our 2019-2020 season, we were all in on the Illini. We thought they had a chance with their roster, with, you know, Keenan Mayo, the talented sophomore at that point at the bottom, or maybe it was too, you know, I, he may have been gone by last year, but with all the talent they had, Zeke Clark coming back for another year, and then, you know, Kofasevich, I believe, was fresh off of a Knoxville semifinal appearance at the Knoxville Challenger semifinal that fall, and just... You know, we were really excited about this team, and that's why we were harsh on them at the beginning of last season because, you know, they struggled at the MLK Invitational, and then they started their season 1-5. in five. And look, it wasn't 
a soft schedule by any means. A 4-3 loss to Ole Miss, a 4-3 loss uh, versus UCF, you know, 4-0 losses and 7-0 losses to Carolina and Florida respectfully can be written off, and that 6-1 loss to Duke looks really bad, but then of course you go and look at the box score for that match, you realize how many of those singles matches ended up going 2-3 sets, if memory serves me correctly. I think it was 4, Maddie. Uh, It might have been plus or minus 1 there, but you know, everything went wrong for them to start their season. In fact, I have it in front of me now. Three matches went the distance in that one, and they were so close to flipping the script. And it's just, you know, this was a team that almost beat Baylor at home last year, 4-3 at the end of February. Got a big 4-3 win at number 23 Northwestern, and was starting to slowly have momentum back on their side. And if you're Coach Brad Dancer, if you are every player on that roster, this year's a redo. You literally are given a mulligan on your 2020 season. That has never happened in the history of college. You know, so rarely, I should say, has that ever happened in the history of college sports where you have a season that goes so horribly against your expectations, but you don't lose a single member of your team due to extenuating circumstances. And so... That, there's just a hunger there that at, you, you can't you can't measure you can't quantify that certainly you expect this Illinois team to have I agree with Maddie with you Maddie and with you Chris do I think they're top ten this season no because of how ridiculously stacked the top ten teams in college tennis are this season do I think they're in the mix would it shock me if they go to the round of sixteen and then play a top eight seed really really closely heading into that quarterfinal round no it wouldn't shock me at all and so I agree. I think this Illinois team uh, absolutely has a chance to reset the course and stay near the top of the college tennis world, which, of course, if you ask uh, one of their fans, would say that's where they belong uh, in the college tennis landscape. At Alex, at Anonymous Fan, I hope we answered your question. By the way, Chris, it's not often that you called me Alex. You must really be fond of me now if you're starting to call me by my first name. But with that in mind, uh, let's move to a question I am very fond of here with question number three, and it's one that we ask all of our college tennis coaches when we have them on the Cracked Interviews podcast. So, Chris, I want to go to you here first with this one, because I don't know if I've ever actually heard your take on this issue. What do you think of moving team competitions in the fall rather than all the individual tournaments? Now, what I think at Freddie Mesmer means is making all the individual competitions during one season and all the team competitions in a separate season. And Freddie, you can tweet at us if I was incorrect in the interpretation of your question, but I think that's what you're asking. Chris, that topic to you first, and then Matt, you can just immediately answer after do you think we should have fall uh, individuals in the in one season, team in the other? Wow. Well, so first, I guess I'm not looking at the tweet, but I remember seeing it, and I thought I thought Freddie, former Virginia Tech player, by the way, uh, was actually asking. Uh, I thought he was implying, hey, he wanted team competition year round. Uh, maybe I read that wrong. Um, no, no, maybe I read that wrong. I'm curious your thoughts on that as well. So, so my my take on what you normally ask the coaches, uh, and no, I never have weighed in on that in terms of um, you know individuals in the fall, team in the spring. It is kind of yeah. I actually would prefer that all individuals. in the fall and uh, I think the biggest obstacle you have to that is the fact that in college your your sport is one or the you're you're a spring sport or you're a fall sport you're not a a year-round sport 
uh, and making a season that actually counted year round. Um, you know, now we're getting to be like, you know, the NBA or Major League Baseball where we've got like a, you know, a nine month season that would be crazy. So I can't imagine having actual team dual matches. There are teams, not not top D1 teams, but there are teams that play dual matches that you'll see count in September. Uh, but they're your, you know, they're just the, the, the small conference schools. But no, I, I would, I, I like the way you posed it to the coaches. I would much prefer to just see everything individual in the fall and everything team in the spring. Maddie, your take? Yeah, I mean, here's the thing, guys. I, I just want to get the best possible product. Like, if we're going to have individuals in the fall, are we going to have the NCAA? Like, are we going to play for the title in singles and doubles in September or in November, right before they leave for the holidays, right? Because that's important. Like, if this thing is in September, we're going to get a crappy product. Guys are going to come into school and they're not going to be ready. Not everybody plays over the summer, you know? So I just, I don't like the thought of that. Maybe if it's in November, right? Mid to late November and, and guys have been there all fall and they played, you know, fall tournaments, right? Throughout September, October, into November. That could be okay. I mean, I could probably get on board with that and that way we just have all the team stuff in the spring. I'm not opposed to that. I just want to get the best possible product and get all of these guys playing their best tennis. And you know, like after in May, right, after they've just played the spring season, that's typically when a lot of teams are peaking, right? Guys are playing their best tennis because they're in form. They've just played throughout January, February, March, April, into May, and then they can finish off the season with that individual tournament. So, I mean, the way that it is now, I'm, I'm definitely not opposed to just leaving it the way it is. I, I've not really had a significant problem with that. But again, if we had to move it to the fall, it's not like I'm highly opposed. I would just rather have it towards the end of the fall as opposed to right when guys are getting to campus in September, if that makes sense. So the background for you listeners who are curious why I asked coaches these questions, it happened I want to say 2016, it was in Tulsa, I believe. It was when Virginia beat Cal and then beat Oklahoma back-to-back to to capture that second straight title in their three-peat run uh, where – you know, the semifinals and finals were rained out and they were forced indoors. And it's the NCAA outdoor championships. The indoor championships are held in February. We want the event to be held outdoors. And John Roddick, after the match, he was kind of public about his, well, why do we call it the outdoor championships if we're going to be end up playing inside anyways? Everyone knows Virginia is going to beat us inside. So why are we doing this? This isn't, you know, it, it compromises the integrity. That was the initial impetus. Of course, there's also the, you know, I... It's different. If your team wins the championship and you're one of the top players in the country, you can find that adrenaline boost, whether it be Steve Johnson or, you know, Ty Kwiatkowski or uh, some of the guys who have gone on to go Ryan Shane from winning the team title to winning the individual title, whether in singles or doubles. Petros, exactly. Gojo making the final immediately afterwards. But how many times do we see the guy whose team made the final, but they lost a heartbreaking final, 
just burnt out and done. And they have to play the very next day to start that singles-doubles tournament. And it's just no one wins in that scenario. And so that's the initial impetus. And that's why I used to be strongly on the divide-them-up camp. I used to also believe how great would it be if the Super Bowl of college tennis was at the U.S. Open. Is if you played the NCAA tournament at the U.S. Open during that second week, you made it the highlight on those exterior courts with the, you know, in the atmosphere of a Grand Slam. So you're bringing college tennis to the Grand Slam environment, getting to expose everything that it's worth. But to your point, Maddie, these guys, to ask them to be obliged as student athletes over the summer, that's not fair. And to a point Michael Woodson made, Baylor coach, in the podcast we did with him, these guys have pro aspirations too. Do you know what they want to do during that U.S. Open week? It's not play the NCAA tournament. They want to be playing the U.S. Open. They right. want to be playing challengers during the fall. They want to be doing things for their pro career. And so it's a really difficult question for me. Now, I still probably lean make individual tournaments at the end of the fall, make all team at one point of the year, or just introduce a gap of like a day or like two days in between the team and the individual tournaments ending. But it's a really difficult question. I mean, I I understand the case for both arguments. I probably lean towards Chris's answer. And Chris, I want to give you a chance to respond, but it's a tough argument. Yeah, I mean, I think your point right there is is why I'm I'm not a huge fan because who wants to watch, you know, Wake Forest go through the the huge run they did and have to grind against North Carolina, then grind against Texas, and then instantly Petros and Borna both like, yeah, we're too spent, we can't play singles. I mean, yeah. that's you know, it's understandable given the schedule that they were provided. But nobody wants to see that. We want to see the best Borna and the best Petros going into those NCAA singles tournaments. So however it is that we can figure out how to do that, I am with Maddie in that, no, I don't want an August NCAAs uh, or even a September. I want, you know, November, December. Hell, I don't figure out how to line it up with, you know, Eddie Herr or Easter Bowl or something. I don't know. But, uh, you know, get let's get something late at the end of the semester and, and maybe then, or like you said, you, if you want to do it, NCA is fine, but we, you got to put a couple days in between. You got to let the guys recover. Mm-hmm. No, Maddie, anything, any final thoughts to add? Yeah, no, no, no. That's, that sounds good guys. I mean, let's just I, look for me. It's all about getting the best possible product. Right. And like Chris just mentioned, we don't want to see these guys just completely gassed out where they can't even play. That's no fun for anybody. You know, whether this is in in the month of May or in the month of November or December, I really don't care because I'm going to tune in whenever it's played. I just want to get the best possible product. That's it. Mm-hmm. No, and I think that leads perfectly into our next question. And Jay, we're back to you, I promise. And his question is, um, you know, for or against mixed doubles in NCAA individual championships. And uh, I think the reason you don't see an event like a mixed doubles or you don't see something we've joked around here before is a Laver Cup of the All-Americans, the All-Stars from across the country, divide them up, have some fun, the men and women, is because they're spent at the end of the t- at the end of the spring dual match season and they just don't have the energy and it's not worth it to play those sorts of events but in terms of for or against I'll speak for myself first here obviously we're for you know I've been trying to get this Laver Cup thing off the ground again do it at the U.S. Open. How great of an opportunity would that be to spotlight the game, to spotlight the quality of tennis going on in colleges across the country? The problem being 
there's just not time for it in the calendar. And the other thing, and this gets back to the last question, why it's so fun to have the NCAA championships at the end of the year is you're like, okay, we've seen all of this college tennis. Now, who's emerging as the individual and team champions, right? After all of this, who can survive the gauntlet emerges champion. You put the individual NCAA tournaments and give yourselves time to do things like a mixed doubles event, then you don't really have that. You have two separate and you know, non-related seasons. And it's like, do you really want to hold a fall championship to determine who's the individual best and then the spring champion to ter- who determine who the team champion is, be- who's best as a team champion? Maybe you do. Maybe you're fine with that. I kind of like declaring all of that at once at the end of the season, but I would be willing to compromise if it meant we got mixed doubles or a little bit more fun at with the fall individual tournaments. Matt, I'll go to you here first. You four against mixed doubles in the NCAA uh, individuals. Guys, um, listeners, I don't want this to come off the wrong way, but this is just my opinion. I don't like mixed doubles. I just <laughs> I, I, I don't. I've I've never been a big fan, and I think it stems back to my playing days. Just whenever I played mixed doubles, I had no success. I sucked. And I just, it, it, it left, as Gruskin always says, you know, it kind of left a bad, a sour taste in my mouth, right? I'm just, it's not something that I get super excited about. And that's just how I feel about it. I, I am totally okay without mixed doubles. I don't need to see it at the college level. If it never happens, you're not going to catch me complaining. I'm totally okay with it the way that it is now. Chris? So I think the way the question was worded, I'm a firm yes. And that was, I think it was worded at the NCAA championships. For or against mixed doubles in the NCAA individual championships. That's the yes. I'm I'm against that. If that's where it starts, then I say yes. My issue with it would be if we some, you know, if we somehow try to work it into the season, first of all, it's bad enough already when we get, you know, the power five teams playing the, you know, mid-major and lesser teams in in the men's singles. I sure as heck don't want to see Will Blumberg serving to the number three singles lady on a sub-500 small conference team, right? And granted, they'd pull him, but... You know, just as an example, the 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 inequities that you would see with some of these guys that are that hit so big, uh, I think would be that would not be fun. But if you can start with no, we're starting with the top ladies and the top guys, and now it's you know the teams from North Carolina, from from Pepperdine, from you know all of it. To me, I'm yeah, I'm all for that. I want I want to see that. I just don't want to see it go on throughout the season with some really lopsided matches. But think about some of the matches we could have gotten over the years. Things like, you know, a Collins-Kwiatkowski doubles pairings or things like an Alex Knight-Kate Fahey. Obviously, that's a little closer to home for me. Or just an Alexa Graham-Will Blumberg pairing. That's just a damn good doubles team. And so, again, I think logistically it's impossible to do during the regular dual match season. Of course not. But if you want to add a mixed doubles draw to every individual tournament during the year, meaning NCAA individual championships as well, as the ITA All-Americans, as well as the Fall Championships, the Indy 
and or individual championships. I'm totally cool with introducing a mixed element into the mix. Uh, I, I just see no problem with it. Again, what what are we losing here? Getting to see more tennis? Oh, no. Like, no, tennis fans don't want to see more tennis. So I, I am in favor of it. Again, logistically, it's really difficult to do outside of those individual events. But at the individual events, uh, no problem with it at all. Uh, let's move on here to our next question. By the way, I think we're just going to divide this into two parts now. We're going to do just the mailbag today. We'll be back at a separate time to do some prop bets, some predictions, because otherwise we'll be here for seven hours. And this is perfect. We'll give you a little piece of content every day in the buildup to uh, the national indoors beginning. Our next question, though, is a fun one. It's a goofy one, and it comes. And I know one, Chris, that it's uh, you wanted to answer as well. Where do you estimate GGC? Of course, uh, Georgia Gulf Coast. Correct? Did I get that right? Georgia, Maddie, smile. Georgia, no, Georgia Gwinnett College. Jesus, leave it in, Westoff. I deserve to be shamed for not knowing. No, I'm going to get in trouble. You know what? Leave it in. Leave it in. Leave it in. Ma- Maddie, shake your head if we should leave it in. Oh, leave it in. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Leave it in. I deserve that. Georgia Gwinnett. Yeah. Okay. But just, guys, I have to balance 500 ATP names, 500 WTA names, 300 different colleges, and the names of my friends and family. Like, come on. Come on. January 24th. Later this week, my buddy's birthday. That I'm going to know. Anyways, Georgia Gwinnett. College, who is an 11-time NAIA national champ. That I know. I also know they won men's titles every year from 2014 through 2019. They had some spectacular teams over these past few seasons. Georgia Gwinnett, my favorite school, Georgia Gwinnett College. Have I said Georgia Gwinnett College, how much I enjoy them uh, at this point, Maddie? Well, I really enjoy them. The question they ask, and this comes from at VT Sports 1, what do you estimate Georgia Gwinnett College, the greatest college in the history of colleges, would be ranked in Division One this year, men's and women's? Now, Chris, you commented on that question already and said it, it, it with specific qualifications, it could be more interesting. Name those qualifications, and then I want to hear your answer to this one. Yeah, my introduction to Georgia Gwinnett was a, was about six years ago at the University of Georgia for Southern Intercollegiates. And I remember watching some matches there, seeing one of the University of Georgia guys play somebody who I'm looking at the shirt, having no idea who it is, a logo I don't recognize. And it turns out that it was Georgia Gwinnett and it was Kevin Confederak. And back those days, they had Confederak and Jordan Cox and a really stout team of guys that had been ATP uh, players that you know i'm gonna assume at some point said well hey it's not quite going the way we planned and so they they cut that short and then went to and went to college something you could still do back then uh, a little easier than you can now but that teams from back then that they had were just ridiculous and would have been you know could have ranked much higher still a little problem getting the depth but if you ask me to rank this year's team i'm gonna say you know this year's team would be struggling for like a top 50 spot ish in the ita rankings and you know i i did not go and pull up utr and try to slide them in to go hey where do they fit i'm just go based off of what i what i know of them and what i've seen that's uh, you know my best guess would be yeah you know if they could crack the top 50 that would be they'd be doing pretty well i don't think I don't know that they could even do that, but that would that would be a pretty lofty goal. Yeah, Maddie. I mean, I again, 
this is why we have Chris on the pod to answer the questions we cannot. He is the professor. Anything you would add uh, on his Georgia Gwinnett, the greatest college in the universe analysis? Yeah, no, that that was good analysis. I think back in the day with those players, like Chris mentioned, the Confederax and Jordan Cox and those guys, they would have had a much better chance. They could have competed at some level, right, with D1 teams. But now, you know, at this point, I I agree with Chris. I mean, I don't think they're cracking top 50. They're not going to be able to compete at that level. I mean, you talk top 25, top 30, top 40. It's just going to be so tough. The depth on these lineups one through six I just don't see any way that they would really even be able to compete at that level so while while it would be nice it's a nice thought I think if it was ever going to happen you know it was those previous iterations of Georgia Gwinnett not currently yeah no I I think you guys nailed it there uh but again what Georgia Gwinnett has accomplished both in the men's and women's side over these past six seven eight years absolutely special the sort of stuff of dynasties you're you know I make this joke all the time we don't talk enough about how successful they have been and so shout out to Georgia Gwinnett for their continued success they absolutely know what they are doing over there. All right, again, I think we've got about five questions to go here, four from Jay, one from someone else. We're going to rapid fire through a couple of these because I don't think they're going to require as long as some of these earlier answers. He's got a couple of Baylor-specific questions for us, Maddie. This first one goes to you, and you can choose to play or pass. Uh, His first question, and it's straight up, he goes, what's the story behind all the Duke grad transfers? I feel like that's a great question for you. Yeah, no, that that is a fantastic question. And and I think, you know, when it originally Ryan Dickerson, right, was the first one to leave Duke um, as as a grad transfer, right? He completed his degree at Duke and then made the switch to Baylor. And I think one of his his big decisions there was just through that recruiting process, just learning a little bit more about their program, how they operate on a daily basis. And obviously, you know, Coach Boland was there at the time. Um, And I think Ryan just saw an opportunity to really, you know, kind of just develop his game even more the way that he maybe didn't, you know, improve throughout his time at Duke the way that he would have liked. I think he saw an opportunity to take a big jump in his game at Baylor and then also, you know, the opportunity to get a master's degree, right, And, and get that higher education I think that's fantastic. And obviously when things kind of unfolded last year, you know, it's not as though Nick and Spencer didn't want to go back to Duke. I mean, they explored that option, but you know, the school, it wasn't really a tennis thing. It was more of a school thing. The university at Duke, you know, didn't allow them to keep their scholarships and and some other things that we won't get into. So they didn't really have much of a choice but to enter the transfer portal. And, you know, what did they do? They called up their guy, Dickie, right? And they said, hey, how's life at Baylor? What's going on here? And, you know, I think his glowing review of just the program in general, the guys on the team, you know, the process of getting better each and every day and and really the chance to do something special there was really appealing to, to both Nick and Spencer And I'll speak for Nick on this one. I know, you know, the chance for him to kind of further his education. Baylor was one of the only schools in the country that had the degree that he's looking for, um, a a degree in cybersecurity. Um, He was very interested in, and there's not a lot of schools that offer that. So for Nick, it was the combination of 
playing on a team that's going to be elite, right? We knew Baylor was going to be an elite tennis school. He could improve his game and then also work on that education at the same time. It just, it made sense. And, and he knew Ryan. So we had some, you know, we had some friends there. The follow-up from Jay is going to be get into those Duke things that you say we don't have to get into right now, but you're right. We don't have to get into them right now. A guy you did mention, though, Brian Boland, who is obviously essential uh, to the recruitment of RYA and Dickerson and uh, all of the guys we saw transfer over. He's now gone. And by the way, another person who unfortunately passed away, I believe, at the end uh, of 2019 uh, was Will Hurd. And obviously what Mr. Hurd, or Mark Hurd, excuse me, I'm butchering names all the way across. Will Hurd is the congressman from Texas. Mark Hurd is the former CEO of Oracle and obviously the uh, man who the Baylor Tennis Center is named after, a guy who has spent his life dedicated to uh, donating not only to the Baylor program, but obviously everything he did with Oracle and the ATP Challenger Circuit, launching the Oracle events and the Oracle Masters Series on it. On and on, and you know, Jay asked the Boland Herd partnership felt like the beginning of a new college tennis dynasty. Now, with both gone, where does Baylor go from here? And you know, the follow up to that is he asked, Is this season a flash in the pan, or can they build on it despite a relatively unseasoned coach at the helm and a potentially lack of resources moving forward? It's a fascinating question, Jay, because there is no doubt you know, nine months ago or even six months ago, uh, you would think all signs are pointing to this Baylor program going on a Virginia USC type run with coach Boland at the helm, the known quantity that he is and the resources behind the Baylor program, his ability to best manipulate those resources to ensure he's got the best college tennis roster in the country. All signs are pointing up, but of course, look, we love Michael Woodson here at Crack Rackets. We had him on the show. We are huge fans of his huge believer in him, but there's no denying the loss of Mark Hurd is not going to be just felt at Baylor, but across the entire college tennis and broader tennis world. That is something that you can't measure the impact of someone who not only uses his resources to, uh, of course, uh, offer them and make them available to these programs, but uses his platform to continue to grow the sport each and every day is actively asking, what can I do to grow not only college tennis, but the sport of tennis as a whole? And that's another question Jay asks is, you know, the idea for getting more viewers' attention to college tennis, whether that fans in the seats or eyes on TV. What does college tennis have to do? Well, obviously it helps when you have someone like Mark Hurd uh, backing your ventures and someone who's going to ensure tennis is at the forefront of technology, continuing to innovate all of these different things. Uh, In relation to Jay's question, Chris, I'll go to you here now. What is your thoughts on this Baylor team? Because obviously a lot of grad transfer, a lot of older talent, even Soto, La, Franson, they've been around the block for a while uh your thoughts on where this Baylor team goes from here yeah I don't think it's a I don't think it's a flash in the pan I think a lot of the questions Jay asked are valid with the exception of uh of the fact that you say well with you know however it was termed uh, you know a lack of resources there are never going to be a lack of resources for Baylor tennis the program was there uh under you know Canole before Boland and then Boland and now Woodson and, you know, they, they offer some things to guys, uh, especially guys that want to see themselves making a pro career out of it, that, uh, that are always going to be there, whether, and, and that's not going to change, you know, with or without Mark Hurd money. Uh, so I don't think that's an issue. 
uh, sure, it doesn't it, it doesn't help when you lose things like that uh, and a great advocate for your program. But uh, but no, I mean, the, I think that program is going to be just fine. I don't think it'll be a flash in the pan. I think they're going to continue whether, you know, and, and it's really whether it's Woodson or he moves on and it's somebody else. It's the it's the history of that program and what they what you can do at that school that I think will afford them the opportunity to recruit the kinds of guys that will bring uh, national cal- you know, champion caliber teams to, to Baylor. And I, I think they'll continue to do that. Matty, I'll give you the final word on this topic. Yeah, that was well put, Chris. I completely agree. I Just from getting a little bit closer to the program here this year, I can tell you guys this, and Chris just mentioned it, but they are not lacking for resources. No chance. The athletic department – they are all in on not just tennis at Baylor, but it is a big everything. sports yeah. school, everything. So um, I don't think that's a problem. I think Coach Woodson, you know, guys are going to learn a lot about Coach Woodson this year over the next few months. I know right now he's relatively unknown, you know, and there may be some people out there that are questioning what he's going to be able to do. But Let's give it a few months here, and I think those questions will kind of answer themselves. I do think he's the right guy for the job, and he'll prove that here very shortly. I think Baylor tennis is in good hands. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very fair point. Well, then, last two questions here. We're going to go one from Rob Small, the other from Jay. Rob asks, and I actually think this is a really interesting question from him, uh, and I'm going to read it here for you guys. He said, you know, big listener to your podcast, not the biggest fan of Chris, but love Maddie and Alex. I just think their youthful, vibra- uh, their youthful vibrations give off this excellence that uh, it's really tough to match on other tennis shows. Well, that's very nice of you to say, Robert, and that's totally what you said. I didn't editorialize that at all i'm not uh, sure what your youthful say, vibrations are gruskin but i'm sure they're happy yeah it right sounds now. weird yeah no i'm vibrating all right let me tell you all right i'm a big listener to your podcast thank you robert we are a big subscriber to your questions uh just now i saw on twitter you were looking for some questions for the next podcast the first might fall into that goofy area so robert you had me there let's just be clear anytime Anytime you want to get my attention, quote me to myself, and you're going to have it. Uh, It pertains to the South Carolina women's tennis team. I don't know if you've ever seen them. I'd imagine you have. I know you get around. It's true. I do get around. Uh, But they have gained quite a reputation as the most annoying, obnoxious team in college tennis. And if you heard that from from Grunt from Chris, you know he would agree. Uh, They are coach and practice to yell after every point. Players that never even talked on the court before they arrived are quickly turned into screamers. Teams are constantly complaining to refs as they affect the play on the surrounding court. What's funny is that they all scream out the same thing. This fall, they were all yelling, I, after each point and or game they won. I guess my question is, is this, in your opinion, part of the game and sportsmanlike? Let's start with the professor, the one-shoulder designer, Chris Halioris. Your take on this, in my opinion, phenomenal question from Robert. Uh, yeah, I mean, and he's not wrong. I have witnessed the South Carolina women, not in their own match, but as spectators at the men's matches in all of the times I've been at South Carolina, which have been many. Uh, and, and in addition to them, uh, Arul, the the, uh, the director there, also a very loud, from coming from a big guy voice. It's uh, when you are on the, I'll say this, when you're on the opposite side, your first impression is oh my god i hate these people right i mean that's that's all that's all it can be is this is so annoying and then 
you realize, well, hell, if I could go home at my at my home courts and do the same damn thing, I would in a heartbeat. It is absolutely part of the game. It's college tennis. It's that that is it's getting in the other players heads. It's it's all of that that you want to see in college. And, and I absolutely love it. Maddie, your take? Well, I, I, I can't say that I love it from, from a spectator standpoint, having to sit through that constantly. There's a few other teams. You know, I'm not going to mention them here, but there are some other teams that I've witnessed. No, come on. I'm not come doing on. it. I'm not doing it. But uh, off air, as soon as we're done recording this, I'll let you guys know. I'm sure you'll know. Um, <laughs> anyway, I look, here's the thing. Everybody at this point pretty much knows that they're going to do it, right? So they're trying to get in your head. As a player, when you go in there to play them, you know what's coming. Be prepared for it. Handle it. And don't let it bother you. Because guess what? When it doesn't bother you, that's going to end up bothering them, right? They want to see the reactions. They want you to talk to the chair umpires and say, what's going on? They love that frustration. So if you can just prepare yourself as difficult as that may be to go in there, just do your best to ignore it as much as possible. You know, it's coming. It's not a surprise and just try to beat them. And and that's all I can say about it. Is it illegal? No. Like Chris mentioned, it's college tennis. Like, Stuff like that is going to happen. You have to be prepared for it. Coaches need to prepare their players for it. And then guess what? If all of a sudden it doesn't affect these teams the way that it has in the past, maybe they're less inclined to do that. I don't know. But that those are my thoughts. I don't love it from a spectator standpoint. When I'm in the stands, you know, I'm trying to watch some tennis, right? And it, I can I can handle it to a certain point. But there gets a certain point, and it's like, Good God, you know, just let's let's calm it down for just a couple minutes here. My ears are ringing. I mean, you know, I don't know. It is what it is. It's it's not going to leave. You can't stop it. So, you know, as a Wolverine fan, uh, as someone who used to be yeah, a little bit know. noisy on the court themselves, yeah, uh, look, it's gamesmanship. Absolutely. And there's a line between obnoxiousness and gamesmanship. But guess what? If the team's comfortable doing it, if you can make, you know, I always say stand by the confidence of convictions. You're the one who has to justify it to your God, your parents, your whomever you justify things to. If you can justify it, then go for it because that's part of gamesmanship. That's college athletics. That's half the fun of playing sports is the the animosity, the uh, antagonism. I mean, you're absolutely right. Half of these teams show up to South Carolina. I'm not going to say they're down 1-0 because it's not that important, but they're down in early break. Like, they're down in early two unforced sloppy errors right off the bat because they're going to get frustrated. And guess what? If you you hate us because you ain't us. That's what I always say. Like, you are mad at a South Carolina team because your team doesn't have the gumption to do something similar. Like, there's nothing wrong with a little animosity between these teams. There's nothing wrong with a little competitive spirit going on. Now, again, there is obnoxiousness. There is going overboard. And certainly, and since their name's already out there, we can say it, South Carolina treads that line. Michigan treads that line. A lot of schools tread those lines, and college has tried to make it a little bit more difficult to be obnoxious while still allowing there to be a team atmosphere over these past few seasons, but... 
yeah, it's part of the game. It's gamesmanship. It's college athletics. That's half the freaking fun. So for me, I love it. I say the more, the merrier, of course. But again, that's our take on that. Now, he did have a second question as well, a more serious question. And Chris, I want to let you address this one. And it's something we have talked about uh, before also. But the question goes something like this. He says, quote, uh, My second question concerns the influx of 20-year-old foreign professionals into the college game. U.S. girls are given their choice, T-H-E-I-R there, but it's okay. We'll let that slide. Are given their choice of turning pro or going to college right out of high school. If they sign with an agent, it's pretty much tough luck. You should have made a better decision after that. But this spring, we are looking at two 20-year-old players, Eleonora Molinari of Tennessee and Carolina Barankova of Duke, who have been on the pro circuit for years. Molinari, who is currently ranked 248 in the WTA, has around 60000 in earnings. She has to pay back last year's earnings, which will be covered by her stipend, and sit out the first 10 matches. My question is, is this fair to American players? Chris, we've talked about this a little bit before on the margins, but curious your thoughts to this question. Well, that, that's really two completely different questions right there. One being just, I mean, I can I, I sense the, uh, the foreign versus taking American players' scholarships. That's the nature of one question. The other question was really more specifically, hey, we've got a couple women coming in that have been on the circuit. Is it fair to let them go play pro tennis and then turn around and come play college? I'm not, I'm not going to go there because I don't think that's the one that most people want to hear the answer to. The one that we get most often is, uh, hey, why do we have so many foreign players? And is it a, you know, you have a, a bunch of people that are very against it and they don't, they feel like they're stealing American scholarships and kids' money and it's taxpayers if it's state schools, etc. And then you've got the folks that are in my camp that say, look, I want the best product, like Maddie said, that I can get. If you force me to pick all American players, the level will drop significantly. Not only will the level drop significantly, it would greatly reduce the fact that college could be a potential pathway to the pros because the level has dropped so much that it's just, you know, it's not going to make a lot of sense for these kids. All of a sudden, the only kids that are going to go to college to play in the U.S. are the ones that are know they're going to go to college to play and then they're going to move on to the business world afterwards. It's not really a great deal for them to go and find a lot of good competition to up their game and get them ready to go play professional tennis post-college. So, no, I love the fact that we have all these foreign players. I want the best players in the world playing college tennis until they're, you know, ready to turn pro, whether that be whether they be 18 to 22 years old or in some cases, especially in the countries that have, you know, militaries they've got to serve in. They come here at 22 years old or 21 years old and uh, after that and then and play I want to see that all day, every day. Just give me the best kids on that are actually going to school playing college tennis that I can get, and that'll give me the best product. Maddie? So I'm going to come at it from a little bit different angle here, guys. And, and from a coach's perspective, they get paid to win, right? When coaches get hired, they're not getting paid to say, hey, go get the best American players you can get, right? And, you know, if we're mediocre, eh, so be it. We'll be mediocre. No, 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 no. Look, these coaches are expected to win, right? If they want to keep their jobs, they need to win. So what are they going to do? They're going to try and get the best players. And oftentimes, like Chris just mentioned, some of the best players happen to be international guys. 
There's nothing wrong with that. And you can't blame coaches for recruiting these types of players. Sometimes they're in situations, you know, some schools may not necessarily attract all of the top American talent because Americans are going to look at that school and go, you know what? I have no interest in playing there. They're in some middle of nowhere. You know, it's not attractive. It's not on the coast. You know, it's it's not a nice location. But, you know, some of these international guys don't care. They want an opportunity to come get better and maybe make their way on the pro circuit eventually. So you can't blame these coaches, guys. Like, they're out there to put the best possible team together and I think we have a good mix of international guys with American guys, right? It's not like the top Americans are ever going to get neglected. They're not. Like, that's not the case. Always, every year we talk about the top recruiting classes and they're loaded with Americans. So that's okay. I, I just, I'm, I'm in agreement with Chris. I want to see the best possible product. And again, you have to look at it from another perspective, coaches have to win. And so they're going to do their job and go get the best players. I would do the same thing. I think you guys covered pretty much every angle of this debate. I've, I've said it before. If, you know, if we really want to, you want to say, okay, we believe in a capitalistic society. Guess what? That applies to college tennis as well. You want to be the best? You got to beat the best. And the best players aren't always born in the United States. And it's to no fault of the coaches that they want the best players on their team so that they can compete and be the best. And it's to the benefit of American players that you have. Nuno Borges's, Mikhail Torpegard's, Petros Risokos's, Borna Gojo's, continuing to push the threshold for what is possible within the game. Or Samdev Devarman, who, you know, Again, there are countless examples littered through tennis's history, uh, college tennis history, of uh, the benefit of international players within the sport. So, you know, do I think – I think the definition of amateurism, the fact that these players aren't allowed to keep their pennies in prize money that they go and win on the future circuit or the challenger circuit in the fall, that is a completely different question than whether there should be international players allowed within the sport. My answer to should there be international players, absolutely. Should these players be allowed to keep their prize money, absolutely as well. But I agree with you, Chris. I think it's two separate topics, but certainly an interesting one that continues to persist uh, throughout the college tennis world but of course look we actually have a couple more topics a couple more questions we could answer it's a huge shout out to all of you guests for all of the or all of you listeners for all the questions you sent in uh, that we have this much content but we will get back to that in our next podcast so i want to leave things here we still have to give some prop bets we still have chris's corner we still have uh, of course our predictions to make for this 2021 season but i can see it in both of your faces to ask you to go two hours on back-to-back podcasts you would get too angry with me so we are going to leave things there we want to give a huge thank you sincerely to everyone who sent in questions again this is something we hope to do throughout the course of this 20. 21 season Uh, I'll go to you first Maddie and then Chris any final thoughts before we wrap today's show yeah guy just everybody listening thank you for submitting questions Jay especially you you uh you know took the the bull by the horns there and and ran with it so it was uh fun to see all of your questions and and keep them coming I mean you know these are fun for us to answer and kind of you know, hear what you guys are thinking, um, and then we can address those those questions. So it was great. Again, even if it's just once a month for Jay, he'll have questions to supply us, and it's nice to escape our little crack rackets, holy trinity thought bubble. I agree. Chris, any final thoughts? 
Yeah, I think uh, I, I think it's one of those where hey, you, that folks don't have to wait for us to ask. They can just post them up anytime. Say, hey, it'd be awesome if you could, you know, ask Coach X this. And what the heck, you know, we talk to these coaches fairly frequently. We will have no problem asking that coach that question and then coming back with the answer. Those are kind of, you know, that that's fun stuff for us. And we love to hear that uh, people are listening. So, yeah, it was uh, fun to do. And uh, other than that, uh, I mean, 10 a.m. Saturday morning. That's that, that that's when uh, we get to have the real fun, boys. Yeah, absolutely. Again, we are inching closer and closer to the start of that national kickoff weekend. For any of you who would like to join us throughout the kickoff weekend, again, we will be covering it all on our Red Zone show. We start 10 a.m., 11 a.m., or I think it's 10.45 Fridays when we're going to start before the 11 a.m. matches, 10 a.m. the next two days as well. And we'll rock and roll uh, throughout the entire course of the weekend. So, of course, be on the lookout for that if you missed any of our college contender content or any of our previewing of this 2021 season, be sure to head over to our website, crackrackets.com. Shout out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the of an any job he does day in day out seriously we have fired so many podcasts at him and we fired a red zone show and he handles it all in stride as maddie said he takes the bulls by the horn so shout out to him as always but with that in mind for my wonderful co-host matt the cracks to chris halliors our super producers fliegner and westoff our friends at DraftKings, and all of us here at both crack rackets and the tennis channel podcast network i'm your host alex gruskin gentlemen what do we tell our listeners hey great, great shot, shot. And we will see you all next time. Thanks, everyone. Hope all of you enjoyed this mailbag edition of the Great Shot Podcast. A huge thank you to all of you out there who felt comfortable enough to send in your questions. This is, again, something we hope to do throughout the season. So keep sending in questions as you have them throughout the year. As soon as we, I suppose, compile enough of them, we'll do another one of these shows. Shout out and Matt and Chris, to Matt and Chris, as always, for putting up with my nonsense. I think we've done like eight hours of podcasts collectively over the past four days. And, you know, they have other full-time jobs their willingness to continue to work with me it shows how much they love college tennis truly love it as much as any two people in the globe maybe even more sometimes than myself and I don't say that lightly so it's always a pleasure to work with them their enthusiasm for the sport just contagious and I hope all of you feel that as well as we are so excited to kick off our coverage of the 2021 college tennis season this weekend with our red zone coverage of all of the kickoff weekend action again you can watch that on our YouTube channel. Chris and I are going to be providing commentary through four uh, to four host sites throughout the course of the weekend. As of right now, USC, NC State, Michigan, and Ohio State all given us the green light to repurpose those streams, provide our commentary over them, jump from site to site as the action heats up. We are very much excited for that. If you are a college tennis fan, I think you'll be excited for it as well. So please be sure to join us. Shout out as always to the super producer, Daniel Westoff, who has a of an editing job to do, not just with this, but legitimately, he figured out how to broadcast and create a red zone stream from our CR headquarters, which is a, a home in suburban Indianapolis. Then he manages to figure out how to do this, sh- you know, this. Sh- Seriously, sorry to throw in an extra uh, swear word for you, an extra cuss there, an extra quack uh, west off, but that's how much I appreciate your efforts. You are the best in the business, and of course, if you want to see any of his other work, anything our CR team is up to, the website is crackedrackets.com, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. 
We are at Crack Rackets. You want to message me directly, I am at Great Shot Pod. Shout out to our friends at DraftKings, DKNG.co slash Cracked Open is the way to play along with all of us. And again, be on the lookout for those aces of the day as soon as the ATP and WTA action resumes in Australia. But with that in mind, for my wonderful co-hosts, Matt and Chris, our super producers, uh, Fliegner and Westoff, all of you out there who sent in questions and all of us here, our friends at DraftKings and all of us here, at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say? Hey, great shot. We will see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.